Who am I is not a question a lot of us ask ourselves often, but today on the podcast, we meet three people who are asking that question actively. Some are looking to rebuild the past and others are shaping their future. When April Erickson became a mom, it reignited her desire to learn more about her own history. But when you have no starting point to return to, it isn't easy to go home again. Marina Kozlock has more on how April is reconstructing her past. Since the end of the Korean War, it is estimated that over 200,000 Korean children were sent abroad for adoption. This makes South Korea the leading baby exporter. April Erickson is one of these Korean-American adoptees. The only information she had about her adoption was her American papers from INS. Last year, she requested her Korean papers in hopes of uncovering anything that would give her an answer about who she was and where she came from. April went back to South Korea in September 2016, and this is what she discovered. So everybody knows that their birth date's given to them. I was found on August 20th, and then born, they gave me a birth date of January 20th. But I've come across a lot of people that have the same birth date. April doesn't even know how old she is, because her age was assigned to her by a caseworker at her orphanage. So I don't know. I mean, you really don't know. It's a social worker making up your name and your birth date, and you, you just don't know. My paperwork starts with me being found in Hainam, which is in Jolanamdo province. Hainam was a rural area. People would come in from the surrounding villages every seven days to go to the market. The playground that they said I was found in is, is in the Songneri village, which is in Hainam. April was left at the park on a non-market day, and she believes that this was intentional so that she would eventually be found. There was no note explaining why she had been abandoned. One theory that I started developing, which I kind of know is true, is that I was brought in from another area and then left there. The bus station was like 100 meters from where I was found, so it makes sense. The whole thing that sparked me looking is because I, I had my son. It was important to me to bring him to Korea when he was young. He loved it. He loves Korea. And anytime you ask him where he wants to go, he says Korea. For somebody who doesn't have like biological family, having your first biological family, I know that that's a really common trigger for a lot of adoptees to kind of like start thinking about it. And that's definitely what it was for me. When April went back last fall to search for her history, she could not find anyone who remembered her. Nobody remembers me. Nobody remembers my story. I was there for a couple of days, I guess, in the care of the Gunsu, which is the village chief. And then I was moved on because they didn't do international adoptions from the orphanage that is in Hainam. Uh, I even visited it. They don't have a log of me or a record. They have the photos of all the children and everything back to like the 60s. There was hundreds of thousands of us. It's been over 40 years and April still can't understand what would compel a mother to abandon her child. I think really what first started was I've never had anybody who looked like me. If I was apart from him, I would be thinking about him like every day, like every hour. And he was like maybe a year and a half. And, you know, I think, what was I doing at this point? And what did I look like? And can I imagine just leaving him somewhere at this point? And the answer is obviously no. When April was taken out of Hainam, she was placed in an orphanage in Gwangju. When she went back to Korea last fall, she started looking for answers at that same orphanage, and she encountered some difficulties. You're dealing with a couple of different things. Time, obviously. Then there's a lot of cultural norms where people don't feel free to talk about those kind of things. So even if you find people now that want to help you, the people back then may not have really wanted to be so open about it, and so you have no idea if your papers are completely fabricated. Record keeping in the 70s was really bad, especially small areas that didn't have like a lot of resources. They get rid of their records every 10 years, they said. And then you'll have people that outright lie to you. It's kind of an ongoing joke that people will say the orphanage burnt down or something like that. 
She met a woman who worked in the government around the time her adoption happened. This woman is continuing to help April look by canvassing senior centers and reaching out to leaders in the communities. There was even a flyer made with her face and story, trying to get people to remember. I left it everywhere in Hainam, and you know, I would hand it to people and they would just start crying. She hasn't been able to locate anyone else on her paperwork, including her foster mother in Gangnam. Her name is Kim Dae Boon. I found the blog that they lived at. We did the same thing, like went around to the community centers. We even went to the, the public office to find any record of her. We found a couple of people with that name. We thought we found her for like a second, but it wasn't her. People knew who the person was, but like didn't, you know, there's no record, couldn't track her down. All she knows of her history at this point is what is in those pages. She knows that she was developmentally behind. She was barely speaking when she went into foster care, and she could not sit up or walk on her own. When foster family calls her by name, she answers speaking ung. While a stranger calls her by name, she closes her eyes. She's fond of male foster family father rather than the female foster family. She has a habit to hold her ears with her hands. She understands whatever is said to her, but she speaks simple words like oma, mommy, ung, yes, jo, give me something. I'm cute with an elongated face, big black, single eyelidded eyes, medium nose, small mouth, medium ears, well-shaped back of head, dark hair, medium complexion, and clean body on which she has no scars or spots. While these points were crucial in establishing that she was ready for adoption, April laments what little information was recorded on her parents' side to process her international adoption. Their age, their employment verification, their heights, their income, and not much else. They just knew that they were going to adopt a female child between 12 and 30 months. I mean, there's not a whole lot here. You can see, like, he worked for the state. She worked for Pacific Bell. This is the credit union there that just said he had $2,577 in his checking account. And that was the application. Money was a big deal for April's working class family. And it played a significant role in her adoption. And uh, so my mom did tell me that uh, white babies were much more expensive. Asian babies were like a quarter of the price or something like that to adopt. In the spring of 1977, she came to California and settled in a suburb outside of Sacramento. The few mementos that have survived include a tattered plane ticket, a tiny ID bracelet with her adoptive family's name, a blue sweater with the word America across the front in big red letters, and a photocopy of her first picture. I grew up in a place where you took your kid to like Olin Mills and stuff to get pictures taken. I think there was like two black kids in my school and one Chinese kid. And then one kid moved there from Hawaii and he was like super exotic, you know? She looks back at her childhood, not seeing her Korean self in anything. Here's me as a little kid. All my playmates were like this, blonde hair, blue eyes. Oh, there's my perm. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I mean, your whole life, you know, like, I, I didn't even know I wasn't white. And then going back to Korea, like, everybody looking like you, was that was the first thing that kind of clicked in me. I was like, this is kind of awesome, you know, like, I, people look like me. She still remembers this feeling. And she wants her son to have some sort of Korean connection. He loves his Korean potty book, his language flashcards, and he sings Korean songs. But he doesn't really understand what he's saying yet. I don't expect him to get like 100% into it, but I just don't want him to be unfamiliar. But he knows that I have a mommy in California and a mommy in Korea. He talks about it all the time, the hotels we were at when we were looking for your mommy in Korea, you know. So he'll call me Oma or Mommy. Mommy is like, you know, obviously a huge one because that's what he hears, but he will call me Oma. His name, he's changed his name to Agi, <laughs> which is something that I've always called him, which is the Korean word for baby. And now, like when he meets people, he introduces himself as Agi.
You look at him being so attached to me at this point, and I must have been to my mother. So I just realized that, like, there's no way that a mom is just going to give away their kid. There's got to be some story around it. Just as her son has adopted his own Korean name, April has one of her own, Haina, which she uses as her middle name. It was given to her as an homage to the place that she was found. It means South Ocean. It also means mind as broad as the ocean. It's a fitting name, as this journey of finding out who she is is as unpredictable, never-ending, and vast as the ocean that she crossed over 40 years ago. It may not be the way she thought she would find it, but April has found community and fellow Korean adoptees in New York City and abroad. My view on adoption is much different now than it was even as recently as like a year and a half, two years ago. I used to think it benefits the adoptee to have this chance. I never really understood the importance of the emotional connection to like your birth family until I got older. I still was like, I'm Korean, I'm not, you know, you're not Korean. You're not in that sense, but I'm also not American. And you have these imprints of things that you know that you know or you feel connected to, but you can't really explain why. But I think it was going to those events that like, Everybody, hearing everybody feeling basically the same. I'm not Korean, I'm not American, I'm somewhere in between. And I never, never really liked the somewhere in between thing because I'm like, I fit somewhere, you know. But going to these adoptee events, I was like, oh, I'm a Korean adoptee. For some people, starting their own family can be life-changing. For Chelsea Moquin, it was finding another family the online community of Benedict Cumberbatch fans. Hi, Chelsea. Hey. <laughs> Welcome to uh, 20 Cooper Square. Cool. Thank you. At what point did you realize Sherlock was more than just another TV show? I think it was because it reminded me of exactly why I wanted to be a writer and why I wanted to be involved in the film industry specifically. I had kind of lost track of that in college and was getting a little bogged down with work and all the stresses that come with being in college. I think a way to immerse myself in that world was to immerse myself in the fandom. So I just kind of dove headfirst because it was fueling my creative energy. So I just wanted more of it. Fandoms are basically the mix of the word fan with kingdom. Mm -hmm. So fandom. So a big part of it is the community engagement. You joined Tumblr while you were attending the Savannah College of Art and Design. Mm -hmm. What did Tumblr change in your experience with Sherlock? We call people that just kind of watch the show and then turn it off. We call them casual viewers. And then the people in the fandom are fans, generally. What kind of jumped between being a casual viewer is that when I turned it off, when I finished watching the season that I was on, I couldn't really stop thinking about it. And I mean, there's only so much you can do with watching three episodes that are like, an hour and a half long each like that only takes up so much of your day so I just wanted I wanted to do more and I didn't really know how and it was at that time that I joined Tumblr it was, it was exactly when season two of Sherlock aired I saw people on Tumblr doing anything from like writing little like missing scenes or interactions of characters that hadn't talked yet or taking photos and you know, doing little edits of them, making graphics. And I kind of realized that I really wanted to be doing all of this as well. In the Tumblr community, do you self-identify as a cumberbitch? No. I don't like the word. I don't like using it. If people call me that, I'll be like, okay, but here's about five or six other ones that are way 
cooler to say and also that I like more. So give us an example of that conversation and what were <laughs> what were the five or six things you said? <laughs> um, actually, I can tell you specifically. So in November, the beginning of November, Benedict was announced to host SNL for the first time. So I got it into my head that I had to be number one. I don't know why. I think I I had the time. So I showed up Thursday morning (laughs) and spent 48 hours in line. And so I had had one gentleman. I think it was Friday. It was getting into Friday evening. He said, oh, what are you guys waiting in line for? Which I had said about a million times since then. And then he laughs and he goes, ah, so you guys are cumber bitches. (laughs) The... The fir- my first reaction was admittedly not the best, <laughs> but I said, I was like, absolutely not. And then he said, well, what are, what are you then? And I said, well, first of all, I'm a person. <laughs> and then he said, okay, what's the word then? I suggested cumber cookies because he, you can be a cumber batch of cookies, which I thought was clever. Also cumber collective is one that Benedict has said himself. I also like the pun in calling us cumbersums, but I don't like the association of being cumbersome, (laughs) but I mean like it's cumber, like you can put it on anything and it sounds funny. What was his reaction? He just kind of chuckled and was like, okay, okay. And then kept walking. There was a a segment in the podcast all about public identity Mm -hmm. and fandoms. How fanish do you allow yourself to be in real life? It used to be separate things for me, and I wanted to keep it separate. It was essentially like being two different people, like shutting down all of the enthusiasm and and um, creative energy that I had or like putting it aside and then just kind of being this almost robot of a person. Well, now you're volunteering with the Three Patch podcast. As fun as it is, <laughs> you're not getting paid for that. True. You had mentioned you were walking dogs to pay the rent and you're in between jobs. Mm -hmm. How has your family reacted to your entrance into the fandom? According to your your resume or your website, they're all mostly engineers? Engineers and doctors and lawyers. So very much not creative types. (laughs) At first, it was kind of something I kept to myself. And then the the more happiness I got out of it, the more creativity I saw in it, the more I got involved, the more I wanted them to also know. Was there something hard about kind of expressing that this was something serious to you in a way that didn't compute with them? Yeah, there, it's a little bit of a almost like a language barrier, I think. But occasionally it's it's often treated like almost like a novelty, like, a, oh, look at that the, Chelsea doing that funny thing again where she does the she travels to London and and stands outside for two hours. I have made a little bit of progress in the realm of bringing fandom and professional life together. I went to a convention in a Sherlock convention in Seattle in October of this past year. And I went to a it was like a party celebrating the start of a new publishing company. And the company is called Carnation Books. The aim is to be kind of a like a, a place where fan fiction authors could publish their work. And uh, I knew as soon as I was in that room that I wanted to be a part of that company. I was like, this is what I've been trying to do this whole time is be involved with this. And now I work like a creative marketer for them. I'm not making money yet, but it's absolutely going to happen. And it's really exciting. Well, congratulations, Chelsea. Thank you. Thank you. Have you met Benedict Cumberbatch? 
<laughs> you could say met with with quotations around it. What was that like? <laughs> it was very weird to see somebody that you look at so often through a screen to like be in front of you and like moving and like an actual real 3D person. Like it just <laughs> it was it was a very surreal experience. I went to London to see him in Hamlet. And he would do like signings at the stage door after almost every single performance. And we waited at the barricade for about maybe about an hour and a half, two hours. And he came out and of course there was loud screams and everybody was very excited. There were a lot of people behind us that were pushing and uh, he stopped halfway through his signature to like scold the people behind us. I think I said something like, oh, thank you for saying that because they were pushing like my friends. And he said, oh, yeah, it's fine. Um, people get out here, they forget their manners. Or he said something like that. And I said, oh, I know, but they're just excited. And then he said something in, in reply. And then and then I essentially, like, floated away. What did, what did that mean to you? First of all, just going to London. But also seeing him on stage had been a, a bucket list goal for me for as long as I'd been a fan of his. But I wish that I had had a better experience. And... I kind of made that, I replaced that bucket list goal with that. I want to have a real conversation with him. The fact that I want this to be my professional life, like however that fits. I want I want to write television. I want to be involved in fandom. I want to essentially make money off of what I love to do. Professionally, it seems like it's been a benefit. But now let's say you're dating. <laughs> when do you bring up that you're in a fandom? I try to bring it up first date. If you don't like television we're just probably not going to get along it's really it's it's almost like a almost like a weird vetting process and it has backfired tell me the story of that date (laughs) it was a series of three dates and initially we got along really well and we're just we went to go see what movie did we, we saw birdman we saw Birdman, which was super fun. We went to a Thai restaurant. It was great. We went to the Met. I think it was after our third date, and things were starting to fizzle out already on their own. She made a comment about just, like, something that was sort of touching on the fact that I cared more about Benedict than I did about her. And I, I just remember reading that text message and being like, all right, listen, we've been on three dates. That's nothing. But just that she was the type of person that would count that as a fault rather than as something interesting, just completely turned me off. BBC shows tend to end at the height of their popularity. Mm-hmm. I can think of Downton Abbey, for example. What would happen if Sherlock were to end? I'm not, I'm not worried about if the show ends, then there will be no more Sherlock in my life forever. I know that that's just not possible. There's always going to be somebody writing. There's always going to be my friends willing to talk about it. There's so many adaptations I haven't watched yet. There's so many pastiches I haven't read yet. There's there's still so much. I still have the DVDs and I still have my imagination. And that's really all you need, essentially. Plus, you have that dream script. And plus, I have that dream script. You're going to pitch to Benedict Cumberbatch. <laughs> Someday. <laughs> Someday. You can hear Chelsea talk more about Sherlock on the Three Patch podcast. When you're feeling really angry, what do you do? Maybe you'll scream or stomp your feet, but what if instead someone handed you a microphone or drumsticks? Instead of hurting your feet or straining your voice, you'd be making music. 
As a music therapist for kids, John Sampson helps children channel their feelings of anger, sadness, or frustration into something beautiful. Natalie Coleman visited him in his studio in Brooklyn. 45 minutes before I interviewed John Sampson about being a music therapist for kids, he sort of hit a little girl with his bike. And I said, stop, and we're already braking. So by the time we collided, I wasn't technically moving, you know, and she sort of like fell to the ground and I hop off my bike and I'm just like, I have my hand on her hand and I'm, and, and she's just, <laughs> and I'm just like, it's okay, cry. That was like a total drama. That was a shock. She wasn't really hurt, but then something strange happened. A gym teacher from the school came over to see if she was okay. But instead of him saying, who the hell is this guy that just hit a student with his bike? He said, hey, aren't you the same girl who hurt herself just last week? There's a reason I'm telling you this story. Nothing is random, in my opinion. The fact that, you know, I, my vocation involves noticing these patterns and understanding that nothing is an isolated incident. It's all connected. Before he left, he had her do a little bit of kids yoga, which he's certified in, and then they went on their way. But there was something about the incident that stuck with him. You know, if anything, it's the kind of thing where if, if that had happened a few years ago even, that would have destroyed me. You know, because I, what's the universe trying to say and, and all of that. But I, I felt very calm. You know, it was like a therapy session in a way. For the past 15 years, John has been working as a music therapist with kids. In the early years of his practice, John might not have even known to call it music therapy. John sees himself as a facilitator of expression meaning he gives kids a place to relax, to have fun, and to really open up in a way that they just might not be able to at home. So that's really my primary role. It really is a therapeutic relationship, and they're not just coming here and they're like, all right, let's get to business. Like, they, they know me as, you know, on a personal level, and so I get to be warm and I get to be myself, and that in of itself is a therapeutic tool. Some kids really need tough love, while others just need to be heard. It's a complicated balance, and it's taken John a few years to really perfect his practice. But he knows that the key to a good session is following his intuition. So I'm like, I don't want to teach these kids how to read music and, and play from a book. People need to feel loved. They need to feel seen and, and just being touched, making that, that contact and really feeling like you're in the world. The first few years of my practice, I was paranoid about touching a child. You know, like, God forbid, it's like a lawsuit or some kind of a something. And then I, I've just come to realize there's certain kids, if not all of them, depending on the age, that really need to be, like, picked up and held upside down. And, you know, I mean, the kids really need that. So when I'm working with a kid here and they have an experience, like a breakthrough, and they just feel really open and clear and strong and empowered, you know, call it magical thinking, but I imagine that rippling out. For John... Everything has meaning. He picks up on the patterns that kids have, like when a kid is banging on the drums a little too hard, or if they aren't making eye contact with him, and they're tugging on their shoelaces while they talk. These little details tell John a lot about what a kid is thinking. Part of my job is to put myself out of business. So the way that I do that is for a child to really internalize a sense of I'm safe, I'm loved, and I'm free to express. And so the walk away isn't, it's so fun when John picks me up and hugs me and turns me upside down. But that's a means to an end. They feel free and expressive and then they can, they develop their, their voices. When I started, you know, ironically, you know, people see me as this gatekeeper of expression. 
you know, in facilitating that. But part of my struggle and why I'm so good at it is because I know what it's like to have my throat close up. John grew up in Johannesburg, South Africa, and he lived there until he was 14. It wasn't always easy for him to fit in. I mean, you can tell I really came from a rough background, a white Jewish South African. Um, I was a late bloomer, though, so I didn't really hit puberty until the, you know, <laughs> until high school. And really seeing, you know, you, some kids in eighth grade have like a five o'clock shadow. And to see all of these emergent, like, men and women, these young men and women in high school and sort of being like this prepubescent South African child with a very feminine voice made me feel very disempowered. And so I never had a therapist as a child. I don't know how I made it through childhood without therapy, but you look at and you say like, oh, that's why I understand when a child comes in who's either obnoxious or being uh, bullied. You know, you just sort of, I was like, I know that pattern. I had my version, you know. Show a little love, show a little love, show a little love. I, I make basically nothing off of selling CDs. Thank God I don't need to do that, you know, because I would much rather give out my music. The average rate for an hour-long session with John is $150, but he's flexible with families that really need his services but might not have the money. John doesn't have much competition in the city, and in the entire country, there are only about five or 6,000 music therapists, and even less of those are for children. For seven years, John worked with an autistic boy named Carter. When he was very young, about two and a half, Carter just completely shut down. He lost the ability to speak or communicate. He couldn't make eye contact, and it was nearly impossible to get him to engage with anything. So John worked with Carter from the age of three till the age of 10. This is Carter's mother, Jennifer. When he regressed into an autistic state, Jennifer took him to countless therapists, but none of them could seem to break through to Carter. Then came John. You know, I'd say that, like, when I first met John, the whole realm of autism was new to us. My whole world was out of control. You know, with John, we couldn't even get him to sit still. If he had 30 seconds of engagement in a 45-minute session, it was a success. Did you catch that? She said that if Carter had 30 seconds of engagement in a 45-minute session, that would be a successful day for him. John and Carter had a special bond, one Jennifer says he rarely has with anyone. So for Carter, like, he's always liked music. He's always liked to sing. And so, you know, John, he had no rules. So he just wanted to create. And so wherever Carter was, John was. If Carter came really low and, you know, didn't want to look up or just wanted to sit and, like, you know, tap his, you know, play with his shoelace, then John would make that into a song. Working with John in his studio allowed Carter to express the things that he couldn't with words. And soon, he was playing with instruments and talking and singing. I, I would be at work, and I'd get this, um, you know, music file, and I'd listen to it, and I would pat, and I'd literally, like, tears would be rolling down my face because, like, to know this is inside your kid. You know, I'm getting emotional as we talk about it. Like, I love finding them, like, that little voice, this little beautiful voice. Is such a gift. Rolling. Uh, uh, uh. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to my song. Oh, cool, the sun sets 
I think about Carter music, John pops into my brain. There's never not a time. When I asked him last night what he wants to be when he grows up, he said he wants to be a singer. John gave him a love of music, truly and completely. Jennifer tells me that it takes a special kind of person to go into this line of work. The progress can be very slow, but he never seems to complain. Frankly, I just, I love, I love my life. I love what I get to do every day, and it feels like a privilege, and it feels like a gift. This is a very challenging world for so many people, and, you know, it's such an honor to play my part. I asked John if, one day, he might want to have his own kids. Yeah, I mean, I'm open to it. I could, I could totally see me enjoying being a dad, but I also know the level of commitment that I would need, and I don't think I would be able to do what I do as successfully simultaneously. I mean, I know I have what it takes um, in my heart, but I feel so in alignment with my role right now that I, I wouldn't want to shift gears, um, you know, but things change pretty quickly. Thanks for listening to this episode of the NYU Journalism Podcast. I gotta find my own way No matter how long And who are we? No Alexander Gonzalez, Natalie Coleman, and Marina Kozlock.